The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast and radio show. Today is another episode from Sustainable Brands Conference Detroit 2019, and I'm speaking with Justine Burt. She's the author of The Great Pivot, Creating Meaningful Work to Build a Sustainable Future. Welcome to the show, Justine. Thank you so much, Laura. So you you seem to know a lot about uh, jobs and where the future is headed and how we can do it sustainably. I've been writing this book for two years, and I was all set to publish in February, to publish in March, and in February... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey announced the Green New Deal. And I was so excited because I wrote this book about the green jobs we need to build a sustainable future. And here they were starting this national dialogue on what the Green New Deal could be. So I read the resolution. It's only 14 pages. And I talked to one of AOC's legislative aides and I said, Randy, is this, there aren't a lot of details here. Is this just intended to be a the broad brushstrokes, uh, a framework for a Green New Deal. And he said, exactly. We want people to have a conversation about what we want the Green New Deal details to be. And so my book has a lot of details. It, it talks about all the work we need to be doing to build a sustainable future in five areas, energy, transportation, the circular economy, reducing food waste is a big one, and restoring nature. And so it gives 30 projects that we can do to, to ramp up and, and build this future that we need. That's perfect. Yes, because there are a lot of changes coming. And I try to say a lot on the podcast that we don't want to take people's jobs away. And sometimes when we think about creating zero waste, we think about companies that are creating a lot of waste, but they also create a lot of jobs and stability for people and products that we need and, and stuff like that. So we do try to focus on um, on jobs and, and brands, basically, which is really cool because of where we are right now. Um, so so what does the future look like to you in terms of losing jobs to things like automation and what other factors? We need a great pivot. We need a big transition away from extraction, manufacturing, use, and disposal. This linear flow economy yeah. is is not sustainable. So we need to decarbonize our energy system, decarbonize our transportation system. Did you know that 40% of all the food we raise and grow is thrown away? There's so many jobs there just reducing waste and then making sure it gets used when possible, when there's like surplus prepared food. And I think we're gonna talk about that in a minute. There, there's so much work that needs to be done to restore nature. It's it's a transition. The, there are only 52,000 coal miners left, and their jobs are being automated away. They need a transition. They need to be retrained into greener jobs, and that's the big challenge in our society. How do we make it easier for people to make that transition? Mm-hmm. And not leave them behind, right? Because and not leave them behind, yeah. Yeah, we don't want to leave groups behind. And even at McDonald's, I, I think America probably has this too, but in Canada you can just go up to a display an order. And then I see on Facebook all the time, people are boycotting them saying, don't use the screens. They take away jobs and I use them. 
but but yeah so automation i think is is taking uh changing it's changing it is and 4.2 million people drive for a living and i live in california in in palo alto and elon musk's headquarters for tesla is right down the street he's planning for autonomous vehicles to be rolled out in the next decade and if 4.2 million people drive for a living what are these folks going to be doing and so he's been saying, well, we need universal basic income, but getting a $500 check per month is not enough to pay your, your basic expenses, your rent and your food and your health care. So and while we're automating, right, while we're automating, we need to be thinking about what jobs we do want people doing that not only would be, that wouldn't be busy work for them, but rather would be meaningful work for them that would make people excited to get up in the morning and go to work. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples of some of those jobs that you know of that are meaningful jobs? You were saying that there are lots in government. There are lots in not-for-profit area. Sector. Uh-huh. <laughs> sector. Yeah, yeah. And then there was another sector as well? I right. Guess just- so, uh, so I profile 30 different projects. And nine of them are really well aligned with the private sector. Eight of them are really best served by the nonprofit sector. And 13 just aren't going to happen without government leading it. And it, it, they will be partnerships between government sector and nonprofit and private sector. But the private sector is not going to build wildlife overpasses over highways. There's no profit incentive right. for them. There's no return on investment for them. But nine of the projects like microgrids and mobility as a service apps are really well aligned with the private sector. Microgrid? Microgrids. Like, uh, like solar and wind, like that kind of thing? Right. And the places start with that. I, I know you're interested in zero waste, but this is a really great opportunity. Every hospital, every municipal emergency response center, like police and fire, needs to have a solar emergency microgrid. So where they have on-site renewable energy, energy storage, electric vehicle charging infrastructure, and also monitoring communications and controls so that when there's a natural disaster, at some point a big earthquake's gonna hit California. We just know that. Mm-hmm. We need to, the hospitals and the emergency response centers need to be able to island from the grid, cut themselves off from the grid to be able to function and serve the community. And so the hospitals in California are going around and counting circuits and figuring out in an emergency, what's the bare minimum we need functioning. We need an emergency room. We need one operating room. We need the intensive care units running. We need lights in these areas. And then what's the bare minimum solar and energy storage they need to keep that functional. Mm-hmm. So, so that's just one example. Yeah. So let's go talk about a little bit of the things you talk about in the the book about zero waste. So one of the things that you mentioned before was uh, aquafil. So what is that? The amount of plastics in the oceans is is getting a lot of attention right now. It's out and of control, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's heartbreaking. It is, yeah. So f- actually, 46% of the plastics in the Pacific Ocean is nylon fishing nets. And there's an Italian company, Aquafil, which is um, creating a plant in Arizona. They are asking volunteer scuba divers to go retrieve the nets that are lost or abandoned. And then they pay fishermen to cut them, to cut off some of the pieces and and 
roll them up for them, bail them up for them, and then they send them to Slovenia for recycling into sneakers and textiles and swimsuits and all these things. Um, there's a lot more we should be doing to reclaim those plastics, those nets specifically from the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And Swedish stockings that we've had on the show that I just showed you, the, the nylons, they're doing that too because you're right, it is a big problem. So that is one company that's that's working on that. And uh, you were talking about thrift shopping as well. So we've done an episode um, on clothing waste. So just how much clothing goes to landfill and the problem with fast fashion. So mm-hmm. what are some of the solutions that you outline in your book? So there's this one thrift store, St. Vincent de Paul in Lane County, Oregon, and they hired a full-time fashion designer. And it was, it was such an interesting story when I heard it. So Mitra Chester uh, was hired. And when her first week, she just went to the donations pile and saw everything that was coming in and started sorting. So keep in mind, Lane County, Oregon's St. Vincent de Paul is right next to the University of Oregon. And so she thought, well, there's a lot of students, you know, they have a lot of parties. I bet they would like, and she started pulling out Western gear and military gear for their parties. And like, that's, she put that out for sale and that sold well. Like costumes? Yeah, costumes. Yeah. But then she thought, how can I upcycle some of these items that are coming through? Because it's just a river of clothing and stuff coming through all the thrift stores in our country. And she started seeing a lot of flannel shirts and she saw a lot of hoodie sweatshirts. So she cut the sleeves off of both and then started sewing the flannel sleeves onto the hoodie sweatshirt (laughs) bodies. And she put a bunch of them out and they sold out immediately. She made another batch. They sold out immediately. She's doing a lot of upcycling like... I don't know about you, but tote bags are never big enough for me. And so she'll take like a leather love seat that has a rip in it or a stain and cut it up and make a big tote bag. Oh, perfect. That's so good. she's doing a lot of things like that. Before she started, the average daily sales for Saint ben- that St. Vincent de Paul store was $500. And it's now $1,500 a day. Because of her work. Because of her work. And so it more than paid for you know, her labor, her time at the store. I think every thrift store should have a fashion designer. There's a lot of young women who want to go into fashion. Well, you know, spend a year or two at a thrift thrift store, you'll really learn a lot about what's possible. And so not everybody has that creative mind, but there are a lot of people who do. And we need you. We need your creativity. We need people who care about this to upcycle some of the stuff that otherwise would go to a landfill. Yeah, I think that would be an excellent idea for someone who wants to do good to buy a bunch of sewing machines and take them to some of the countries in Africa who are now saying, Hey America, we don't want all your clothes anymore because mm-hmm. they're not really culturally appropriate, which is true. Right, right. Go over there and you see people wearing Tommy Hilfiger and stuff, right? right. And uh, the problem though is that a lot of the leaders over there want to create clothing factories, and we don't know if they're going to have the same labor standards. We don't know mm-hmm. if they're going to be just dumping chemicals into rivers, mm-hmm. right? So it would be really cool if they could still take that stream of clothing and turn it into more culturally appropriate and more fun pieces and and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And zero waste. Daniel in Brooklyn, he's doing that as well, but for like really high end fashion. I wonder if Elizabethan would be a good model for entrepreneurs in in Africa. They take like 12 t-shirts, thrift store t-shirts and cut them up into patterns and then re-sew them into a new shirt. And just just look it up online, Elizabethan with an S. Some of the designs are really cool. And that could be a way to make it more culturally appropriate and cut out the things that maybe aren't. And different colors too, right? Like I find the fashion over there is very, very colorful and mm-hmm. vibrant. Mm-hmm. So you can take the colors, I think, from different clothing and, and put them together, right? Like right. Uh, Zero Waste Annual will take 
all different fabric scraps that are black and they're different kinds, but they all make black pants Mm -hmm. when you sew them together. He just sews them in a a really, really crafty way. Cool. Yeah. So uh, what else do you talk about in your book? So you mentioned um, what is building deconstruction? So that is when you have to take down an old building? Right. So uh, Portland a few years ago was a bit concerned that so many of the old houses were being torn down and not just torn down, but smashed and pushed over into a 40 cubic yard dumpster and hauled to the landfill. Mm -hmm. And so they created an ordinance saying, if you have a house that was built before 1916 and you want to take it down and replace it, you have to deconstruct it because people are throwing away solid oak flooring, banisters, doors, cabinets, clawfoot tubs, sinks, when that could be reclaimed and reused by people who need lower cost building supplies. Mm -hmm. They gave a $2,500 grant to each project to cover the cost differential between the cost to deconstruct, which is a little more expensive, um, versus demolishing. So demolition, it's just big equipment that smashes buildings down, but it also releases you know, lead paint and, you know, mercury from the switches and asbestos throughout the neighborhood. So it's it's really a, a dust mitigation, hazardous mitigation issue, as well as uh, reclaiming the materials. And as a result of that ordinance and the grants, which were just for a year, but they did dozens of projects as a result, there was a training for 14 people on how to do deconstruction. Three of them had been right out of prison. Several of them had been homeless. And over a three-day training, they learned the basics, and then they they practiced and, and did some projects. Two new companies were created as a result. One was Goodwood, and I talked to Mike Greenhill in the book, and he said, hey, I was a graphic designer, and I heard that the city of Portland was doing giving these grants and they they had an ordinance and I thought, you know, that sounds like a worthwhile endeavor. So he hired his friends and friends of friends and they started a company with $10,000 he had in savings and he just bootstrapped it. And now he's selling $23,000 a month of salvage wood because half the value of the building is pulling the two by fours out, pulling the nails out and then selling the wood. Mm -hmm. So this put people to work mm-hmm. and it's a great match for people, you know, either right out of prison, 626,000 people come out of prison every year. And if they can't find a job, which is really hard if you're next felon, they can't reintegrate into society. Having people in prison is expensive. And so if we can have them deconstructing a building, then they're learning how a building's constructed and it's essentially job training. So it's just such a beautiful story at so many levels. And it's about reclaiming materials that can have a new life. It's very cool. And it's nice to hear about businesses that are starting up in uh, in the green field because there is a lot of opportunity and we hear about that. We hear that there there is opportunity for jobs, but sometimes we don't hear about what those jobs are. So do you have any other examples of anyone who started businesses uh, like that in the, the green economy? Um, within zero waste? Yeah. So I, I love the story of Replate. This is a nonprofit, actually. Uh, Replate is out of San Francisco, and they have um, operations in many cities, actually, now. And Replate, basically, um, companies pay for them to come pick up surplus prepared foods. So if Salesforce in San Francisco has a big event, and they have at least 10 trays of extra food, surplus prepared foods, they will go onto their app and say, hey, Replate, we have 10 trays of food. Can you come pick it up this afternoon? And then Matt Stepanovich Stepanovich will 
drive over and pick it up and take it to a homeless shelter in Emeryville. And Matt's story is interesting because he was in Japan on vacation in 2011 when the earthquake and the tsunami hit. Oh, wow. And he really wanted help. He saw the devastation around him, and he went to a community group and said, how can I help? And they said, well, there are many displaced people who lost their homes who are now living in these hotels. If three times a day you could come to the central kitchen and drive food over to them, we'd really appreciate it. He stayed extra time in Japan, but after you know three or four weeks, he's like, I really have to get back. So he came back to San Francisco. He was driving for Uber. He's like, eh, it's Uber. You know, it's gig economy. It's okay. But then he met Maine Mafood, who's the executive director of Replate. And he found out what they did, that they pick up surplus prepared food. He's like, this is what I want to be doing. I love driving. I had this great experience in Japan. I'd love to keep doing it. And so every day he loves interacting with the customers. It feels so great to walk out with the trays of food and put it in the car and deliver it to people who who are food insecure, who don't know where at least one of their meals per day is going to come from. Mm -hmm. So it keeps food from rotting in the landfill, which turns into methane, which is a greenhouse gas. It works at so many levels. Yeah, and it's a very bad greenhouse gas, too, uh, right away. And so it has to be piped out. And then um, the food overcrowds landfills as well. So then we have problems with contaminated water from other products that are in there. And then people have to cap it. And I mentioned this a few times, but I was in Cayman Islands. Have you ever been there? <laughs> so the highest point on the island is a trash mountain. And they just keep adding to it because they don't have anywhere else to put it. They're going to have to start shipping it off the island soon, I wow. think. But when I was there, I tried to get a drink for my son and everything was coming in plastic and there was no recycling there. So mm -hmm. everyone who comes to the island almost like contributes to this mountain of trash. Wow. Um, and I would think that, yeah, the food, the food would be going there too. So if there wasn't any food there, I'm sure it would be very, very smaller. But there's, there's lots of work that we have to do to keep things out of, of landfill. So... Um, anything to do with food waste is good. And so that that's called reverse catering, right? Right. So the term for that is very cool. And uh, what about tool lending? So the city of Berkeley has a tool lending library in California. And they it's one of the first. It started in 1979. Oh, and there wow. are two full-time people who maintain and lend out and take back the tools they have. And it really serves the community. It's located at the library. And so if somebody needs a demolition hammer because they're going to be ripping apart their bathroom to, to renovate it, they just go check one out for free. And it's free for a certain number of days, but there are late fees. So if you have three days with the demolition hammer and you bring it back after a week, you're going to pay a late fee every day. Those late fees alone pay for two full-time people to work there. So it's this community <laughs> asset where people don't have to Every household doesn't have to buy the same 100 tools that sit unused most of the time in the garage. Right. But they can go and just get what they need for a few days. While I was interviewing the guy there, um, someone walked in and said, all right, so these three, I'm, I'm trying to um, adjust my, my door and my frame, and these three tools didn't really work. What else do you have? Can you imagine if you'd gone to the hardware store and bought three tools and found out they were the wrong ones. And then he had to buy more tools for something that he rarely does. Mm -hmm. So it, it just seems like a great community <laughs> asset and something that would pair nicely with a maker space and a repair cafe. Like if your vacuum cleaner breaks down, do you know how to fix it? Like no, I wouldn't, I don't, <laughs> but wouldn't it be nice to go to a repair cafe where someone who loves tinkering and loves fixing things 
wants to fix it for you, and the 10-year-old who loves mechanical things wants to learn how it's done, a space for people of different generations to interact and and share knowledge, Mm -hmm. as well as a space where kids can build stuff and try things and, you know, do do something other than screen time. My Mm -hmm. son and I fight every day about, come on, can you do something besides look staring at a screen and consuming someone else's content? I want you to create things. And so anything that can get kids away from screens for a little while and building things and creating things instead of just consuming things would be would be skill development. So yeah. I think every community should have one, a remakery like that. Sometimes I tell my kid to get off the phone and sometimes my kid tells me to get off the phone. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. I'm on it. Put it down. <laughs> it's like addicting almost. It's like, uh, it reminds me of a slot machine. Um, behavior where you're scrolling, you're just scrolling, 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 like waiting to see something. I don't know. But yeah, if you can get people out and doing things, you know, you could have the next invention that, you know, does something really great, especially with children, right? If we develop those skills at a younger age, Mm -hmm. that's very good. And then you're keeping things from landfill again, right? That vacuum cleaner that you said, I don't know how to fix. Right. (laughs) I could have to throw it out if I don't know exactly how to fix it. And those, those places are becoming few and far between. We don't really take our TV to a TV repairman, but the, the older generation tells me that everybody knew the guy in town who fixes TVs. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think he's there anymore, but, um, same with appliances, you know, there was the one guy that did that and there was a shoe repair store in the mall, you know, and Mm -hmm. those things are kind of falling away. And, and it does make sense from a business perspective to, to sell more if things are breaking. Right. But I think brands are right now realizing that it's just kind of ethically wrong to make things that break easily and then not have a way to repair them and send them to landfill. So it's nice to see that, uh, that, that attitude is changing a little bit. I remember my printer broke and I took it to the computer repair guy and he said, how much did you spend for this printer? And I said, well, it was $99. He's like, it's going to be three hours for me to fix it, $100 an hour. Why don't you just buy a new printer? Exactly. And that's, that's the way our society is. And it's, it's convenient and it's, it's cheap, but it would be nice to be able to repair things, I think. Mm-hmm. How do we retrofit our society so that's easier to do? Yeah, and make better quality products and and trust the brands that we know are going to make the quality products mm-hmm. so that we can trust someone to go buy like a $200 jacket or something, you know, if we know we're going to have it around for 20 years. I have a jacket that I still sometimes wear. We call it like the woods jacket, you know, if you're doing like dirty farm work and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had it when I was 15. So I've had it for um, 21 years. <laughs> and it's it's still good. It's just like outdated, like the style and stuff. But you know, are still keeping it around. So if you if you know the brands that'll make good things, yeah, you can kind of trust them. I'd pay more for electronics if I could upgrade them when there's a new one. Like your computer, like the body's basically good. I know computers are tough, but I just took my sister for a test drive in a Tesla, oh, and I, I just learned Tesla. that the Model S, they just automatically, every time you get into it, they update the software. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's just a rolling battery on four wheels now, and it's all run by software. So you don't have to buy a new car every time there's an upgrade in terms of autonomous vehicle self-driving functionality. Mm-hmm. They just upload the software without you even like doing anything. So wouldn't it be great if we could you know, upgrade our electronics as they get better rather than having to buy a new phone every every year or two. Yeah. I mean, because my phone's in good shape, but it'd be nice to have more functionality. If we could, you know, repair things, upgrade things 
without having to buy new all the time. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd pay more for that. Yeah. I remember New York City, people were able to take their old phones in and get new upgrades, like with their plan or something. And I thought that was really cool because we definitely did not have that in Canada. But they do have they do have software updates. So I guess that that is saving phones a little bit. But still, there's a new phone that comes out like every year, right? So that's tricky. And there's a lot of uh, material that go goes in behind making a phone. So you mentioned the Green New Deal too at the beginning of our conversation. So... What is that? Because, and, and, and with anything that has a zero waste perspective, because uh, we do hear about it a little bit in Canada, and we have a Green Party in Canada as well that's that's sort of picking up on that. What is the Green New Deal? Well, it depends on what we want it to be. It's just a broad framework that talks about decarbonizing our energy and our transportation systems. And I've been talking to my legislators in California who are in D.C. and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's staff saying it also needs to be a circular economy and it also needs to reduce food waste because food rots, rots into methane, which is a greenhouse gas. And we also need to restore nature. I live in California where we have wildfires are a serious threat oh, yeah. six months out of the year. And we have 130 million dead trees that are just waiting to catch fire from whatever reason. And... It was interesting. Yesterday, I was talking in the expo hall here at Sustainable Brands with American Forests. And he said, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of, I think it's Jad, said they're talking to legislators in D.C. about including in the Green New Deal forest restoration, because mm-hmm. that's a really key part of it as well. Yeah, there was a president that like created all the parks, wasn't there? Wasn't it like, was it Roosevelt that created all the national parks? I can't remember. Maybe I'm putting you on the spot. Well, we had the New Deal. <laughs> Under, under FDR, yeah. and that was putting people to work at a time of massive unemployment. Right. And yeah. so now we need a Green New Deal yeah. to address climate change and mass species extinction. So we're all deciding where, where are the boundaries, where are the contours of the Green New Deal, what needs to be included. If we don't include restoring healthy forests, which can sequester carbon and be habitat for wildlife, then we're missing something. If we don't talk about if we don't create jobs to reduce food waste, like reverse catering we just talked about, if we don't do the circular economy, if we continue to extract, manufacture, use, and dispose, we're not going to get there either. So there are all these key parts of the Green New Deal, and the resolution was just a starting point. Now we all get to have a discussion about what we want it to be, what mm-hmm. we need it to be. And we could create millions of green jobs that give people's lives meaning and purpose. Right. And from a political standpoint, I suppose it's good to have a a federal umbrella. And then that way states and municipalities and cities can come under that umbrella and then kind of fill in the gaps, which is a little bit what your book does too, right? You're taking that overarching principle and and filling in more of the details? Well, we don't know if the Green New Deal is going to happen at the state level. People in California are talking about a California Green New Deal. Is anything going to happen at the federal level? Maybe not in 2019, but maybe this is a discussion we continue to have through November 2020 when we elect a new president for the United States. I've been asking cities, Fremont, California, do we need a Green New Deal in Fremont? So just by asking these questions and facilitating these dialogues, We'll figure out what we know we know, and then th- we'll talk through these questions and figure out what we want it to be, and things will start to emerge mm-hmm. about uh, what it obviously should be. So why did you write this book? Why are you sustainable, and why do you care about the future of jobs and, and sustainability? I wrote this book because I teach a class through UC Berkeley Extension, cool. and it's about managing sustainable change in an organization. I teach um, adult learners 
how to implement sustainability projects successfully. So whenever you're trying to change something in an organization, you get resistance. It's just human nature. There's inertia to just keep doing things the way we've been doing them. So how do you identify what are the barriers? What's going on? Is it a technical barrier, financial barrier, psychological barrier? And then I teach them, here are all these tools that you can apply to successfully break through and implement. And so when I finish teaching this 15-hour class, several of my students come up to me and say, I'm so excited about this work. Where can I get a job doing this? Mm-hmm. And I think there aren't that many jobs doing this. We need a lot more jobs like this. And so I was thinking, what are all the jobs that we need to be doing that we aren't doing at a level that matches the severity of the challenges we face? What do we need a lot more resources for? And I started cataloging them. And now that's what this book is. It was going through energy, transportation, what jobs do we need in the circular economy, reducing food waste and restoring nature. So it'd probably be a great reference for people who are entrepreneurs or who are maybe graduating university and wanting to start their green careers and haven't quite found a job yet. Exactly, exactly. And the first project that's coming out of this is that I'm talking to a number of people about green business accelerators. How do we find the people who want to start a business, either a a green business or a nonprofit, and give them the support they need for a year? Have a one-weekend boot camp to just teach them the basics of starting a business, business structure and, you know, financing and marketing and business plan and let's practice our pitches and then build this community of people who can support each other. Starting a business is hard, lonely work. And if you have 50, 100 people around you going through the same struggle, it'd be a lot easier. And then come back together once a month. Hey, let's practice our pitches again. Do you have questions about your business plan? What are you running into? Give them this runway of support over the the first year so they can launch businesses and nonprofits. That's what I'd like to see come out of this. Very, very cool. And that extension course, because it's extension, does that mean anyone can take it? Or do you have to be enrolled in the university and... The course that you teach? No, you just pay for the class one off. But they they have a certificate program, Sustainable Leadership, where you take six classes and then you can put that on your resume. Nice. And that's at U Berkeley. So if anyone's interested in your course, they can can, uh, look at at the website. Very cool. Awesome. That was Justine Burt. She's the author of The Great Pivot, Creating Meaningful Work to Build a Sustainable Future. If you like our show and want to help save the world from all this trash we're consuming, please consider donating to the Zero Waste Countdown. You can become a patron on Podbean. You can find me on Patreon. Or you can donate right on the website, zerowastecountdown.com. And if you're interested in seeing a photo of our guests, you can check us out on Instagram. That's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you want to email me, it's laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks to all our listeners in America, Canada, Australia, Germany, the UK, and wherever else you may be tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. (laughs) 